Thank you so much, Jordan. I'm not a good sleeper on Sundays. I wake up really early, and the house is quiet, and there's nobody to talk to. So I make my way here really early. Usually before the sun comes up, I'm sitting up in my office, and, and I get to watch the sun rise through those windows, and it's beautiful. And this morning, as I was sitting in my office, and I was looking out my window, and I was watching the sunrise, it was kind of it was kind of gray, and it was drizzly, and it was cool, and it was crisp, and I was ready to light like a chestnut maple pumpkin candle and put on a big chunky sweater, curl up under a blanket and read a book with a cup of coffee. Like it was that, it was that morning. It's happening, y'all. We're getting there. I so desperately am ready for real fall to get here. It drives my wife absolutely bonkers because I'm always wishing away the season that we're in. But fall specifically, I long for, not just because of the chunky sweaters and the chestnut maple candles, although that is a big reason. It's because the calendar may tell us that New Year starts in January, but the rhythms of our culture and society tell us that New Year starts in August. The kids are back in school. It's the end of kind of the chaos, the joyful chaos of summer. It's new rhythms and routines. We anticipate not only the fall weather, but the coming holidays, all of the things that the next season is going to bring. It gives us an opportunity to dream and anticipate what the next year is going to look like. And this year, during the church at, Lachlan, at the church at Lachlan Springs, during the month of August, that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking these four weeks, anticipating what comes next, and reminding us of our baseline, reestablishing who God is, who we are what we believe and where we are going. And we're doing so through the book of Deuteronomy. If you remember, Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' big farewell speech. They're camped out there on the plains of Moab. They're looking out over the promised land. It's the second generation. All but three men had had passed away. None of the people that Moses was speaking to had experienced captivity in Egypt. So Moses, before they went into the promised land, was taking this opportunity to remind them of just those things, reestablish those baselines. I need to know that I know that I know that you know who God is, who you are, what we believe, and where we are going. This morning, as we continue in that pursuit, as we continue in reminding ourselves of those foundational truths, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, as Jordan was reading that passage, you might have noticed on the screen that verse 5, where he ended, actually ends with the words, and he said. You know, it's a big, it's a big cliffhanger. The next 20 verses are the famous Ten Commandments. Moses says, I want to know that you know who God is. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Remember Deuteronomy 6, the Shema from a couple of weeks ago. 
our God is the only God. He is singular. He is unique. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. I want to make sure you remember who you are. A holy nation, a nation set aside. God's people. You are identified not by what the world says you are, but what, what God says you are. And God says you are chosen. And now I want to remind you, God's chosen people, of what we believe. And in doing so, Moses recites and reminds them of the Ten Commandments. Those commandments chiseled on two stone tablets at Mount Sinai. Now, he starts as he goes into these Ten Commandments, this passage that Jordan read for us, reminding the people of the covenant. There in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's the alter, alternate name for Mount Sinai. He did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with all of us who are alive here today. I know you weren't there, Moses is saying. Your parents and your grandparents, they were all there. God's promise, God's covenant is not just with them, it is with you. God's covenant is, is a guideline for his relationship with the living, not with the dead. Do not think that this covenant is relegated to past history. It is with us, God's people. And then he recites the famous Ten Commandments. Now, who among us can recite all Ten Commandments? You raise your hand. What, what, what if I got you up here and asked you to do it? I'm not going to do that. That would, have been, that would be incredible, though, right? Okay, here we go. Have no other gods besides me. Some of you have translations that say have no other gods before me. That doesn't, that doesn't mean have no other gods in front of me, have no other gods that have priority over me. It literally means have no other gods in my presence because I am the only God. This is God reestablishing the Shema. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Have no other gods because there are no other gods. Have no idols. I'm the only God. There are no other gods in heaven. Also, don't worship anything here on earth. Don't worship anything man-made. Don't worship the tangible things around you. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Way more than just simply saying the big one that your grandmother was going to wash your mouth out with soap about. Don't do that either. But that's not this, or at least that's not only this. Don't use my name to further your own ambitions, to further your own desires, to further your own pursuits of power. Do not use my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You guys remember what holy means. Set apart for a purpose. Keep a day for your relationship with me where you curl up in my lap set aside a day of sabbath and keep it holy honor your parents we could preach an entire sermon series on the complexities and the nuance and the heartbreak that this commandment brings so often don't murder don't commit adultery don't lie don't steal don't covet other people's stuff there they are the Ten Commandments, one of the most famous concepts in the entire scripture. 
there are people, I would be shocked if you could meet someone in America, even someone that has never opened the Bible, that has never darkened the door of the church, that does not self-identify as a Christ follower, that is not on some level familiar with the concept of the Ten Commandments. And the reason I say concept and not passage is because most people, including those of us that are a part of the body of Christ, those of us that self-identify as Christ followers, are familiar with the concept, but can't necessarily point to the passage. I think it's in Exodus somewhere. I know a couple of them, but uh, I can't really recite them. I just know of them as a conceptual foundation. They're a part of our story. They're a part of our history, which means if we are going to discuss them as foundational of what we believe, we have to start with what they are. The Ten Commandments are defined and described in Exodus 34 as the words of the covenant. Which even that is a bit problematic, because covenant is one of these words that we throw around a ton in churches, but not many of us know exactly what it means. We have a vague concept, there's, a, there's an old covenant and there's a new covenant, and I know they're somehow tied to the Old Testament and the New Testament. The covenants are the story of the scripture. It is the meta narrative that ties Genesis through Revelation all the way through the course of human history. When we talk about the old covenant, it is not a singular covenant. It's a series of covenants that were established in, in the Old Testament, building upon one another. It all starts with God's promise in the Garden of Eden as he has that perfect beautiful relationship with Adam and Eve that relationship was famously broken they were sent out of the garden and then he begins to establish covenants with his people all designed to restore humanity back to that original perfect relationship in the garden when we talk about the old covenant two main covenants is usually what we're talking about the covenant with Abraham which we see unfold throughout the book of Genesis, mainly Genesis 12, Genesis 15, right in there. As God talks to Abraham and says, I know you're old. I know you don't have any children. But my promise to you is I will make your descendants great in number. I will make them a great nation. I will be their God. They will be my people and all nations will be blessed through them. That's my promise to you. Your job in this, Abraham, is to trust me and to teach your descendants what I have taught you. God's covenant with Abraham, broken time and time and time again, which leads us to God's covenant with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. As God leads his people out of captivity in Egypt, we cross through the Red Sea. We're camped on the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up into the presence of the Lord, and that's where the Mosaic Covenant was made. God again says, I will make you a great nation, a nation of priests, a holy nation, and the world will be blessed through you. Your job is to follow my laws, which is when the Ten Commandments were given to God's people through Moses on those stone tablets. So when we call the Ten Commandments the word of the covenant, it's establishing that these are the rules 
that would govern that covenant relationship. Disobedience to this law, disobedience to these commandments is synonymous with breaking the covenant. Now, all of that begs the question, why? If God is making a covenant with his people, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to. Why doesn't he just do it? If the promise to Moses is, I'm going to make you a nation of priests, a holy nation, and bless the world through you, why does he have to establish rules for his people? Why can't he just do that thing? In our house, we often talk with our kids about a few things to keep in mind to live a happy life in the Hannah house. Atticus and I have this conversation almost every single day. He could recite them backwards and forwards. The second of, I won't make you do it, Addy. The second of which is, every rule has a reason, and you can always ask what that reason is. The rules in our home are not arbitrary. If we establish a bedtime, you are free to say, why do I have to go to bed at this time? And we will explain that to you. If we don't allow you to have cotton candy for dinner, you can say, why can't I have cotton candy for dinner. If there are certain toys that you can't play with, if we limit your screen time, any of those things, you are always free to say, what's the reason behind this? And it is our job to show you that these rules are not arbitrary. As we look at the Ten Commandments, we are free to say, why? They are not arbitrary. They are established with a purpose and for a reason. It begins with this. Do you remember what the covenant was? We literally talked about it 90 seconds ago. God said, I'm going to make you a holy nation, a nation of priests. Holy as in set apart. Following each of these established laws does just that. Completely countercultural, every single one of them. Counter to everything the other nations around were doing, following these laws would set God's people apart. It would be undeniable. For anyone that saw them, for anyone that knew them, that they were different. It establishes a moral compass. A very clear right and a very clear wrong. It gives his people the guardrails that keeps them in between the ditches. And to that end, it's for their good and it's for their flourishing. It's not just random arbitrary laws that would set them apart. God didn't say, I'm going to make you a holy nation set apart for a purpose. And in order to establish that, everyone needs to dye their hair rainbow color. Because everybody else will see the rainbow color hair and think, wow, that, they're different. They're set apart. Well, yes, that would be true, but there would be no purpose to that. These rules are are for our good they are for our flourishing as god establishes them for his people he says if you do those things if you do these things it is going to keep you in between the guardrails in between the ditches and finally isaiah 42 describes the ten commandments as a light to the gentiles it's a beacon of hope. It's a flashlight showing people the way. I am setting you, my people, apart so that you can be an example, a model that shows all people the way back to me. 
The what is the words of the covenant. The why is for our good so that we might be set apart, so that we might be a beacon of hope for the entire world. There is also a how. If you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, you can see two very distinct categories. First four commandments, a guide to right relationship with our Creator. Recognize Him. He is the only one true God. Not worshiping anything man-made, anything tangible, anything on this earth setting aside a day just for him, not using his name in vain. Those first four commandments governing our relationship with our creator, commandments five through ten, giving us a guide to right relationship with other people, with our family, with our neighbors, how we interact with those around us. As a matter of fact, that's exactly why in Matthew 22, when Jesus himself was asked by the Pharisees, hey, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most profound commandment? What's the most important commandment? What's the commandment that summarizes the entire law? Jesus doesn't just quote one, he quotes two. First, he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Then he quotes a law out of Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the law is founded on these two concepts. If you do these things, it summarizes the law. Love God, love people. We've all heard that a thousand times. That is, that is defined in the Ten Commandments. What it looks like to love God, what it looks like to love people. All of that is great. Hopefully you've heard a lot of that. Most of us, when we hear these things, we think, man, that is a really, really good history lesson. It's a good reminder of kind of where we came from, this plot point in our story, how we got to where we were, how we established, how God established his people, you know, how Charlton Heston stood there with the tablets, and has nobody seen the Charlton Heston Moses? Thank you. Um, it's if you haven't seen it, you need to go back and, and watch it this week. But that is usually our touch point with the Ten Commandments. It's Charlton Heston in a robe in a classic movie. And we think of it as just a history lesson. What does it have to do with us? This is Old Testament stuff. This is Old Covenant stuff. Haven't we gotten beyond that by now? You know, oftentimes Jesus was accused of believing that exact same thing. The Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, kind of the religious leaders and the religious elite of the day would follow him around and they would often accuse him of breaking individual laws. They would often accuse him of ignoring the laws. You know, he, he ate with, with tax collectors and sinners, which he did. He was regularly accused of being a, a partier, a drunk, a glutton, all of these things. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath time and time and time again. So that was kind of their big argument against Jesus. Jesus doesn't even believe in or remember or respect the law. In Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, 
We have the transcript of probably the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. By this point, Jesus' reputation had already been established. There were huge crowds everywhere he went. This day was no exception. He's standing on a hillside, and there are massive crowds in front of him, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They would often follow him around. You know how sometimes you get out your phone and you do the rage scrolling? You know, I'm going to go find this person on social media that I know disagrees with me because I'm angry and I just need a reason to be angry. That was the Pharisees and the scribes. I want to go hear this man because I know exactly what he's going to say and it's just going to make me angry. They were making sure he wasn't preaching blasphemy or trying to catch him preaching blasphemy so that they would have something to accuse him of. So they were absolutely there and Jesus was well aware of the accusations they would hurl against him. And so he addresses those at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got your Bibles open, you flip over to Matthew 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Christ preaches. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter... Not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You say, I came to abolish the law, to ignore the law. I don't respect the law. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And just so you know how serious I am about the law, I understand that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you have no chance to enter the kingdom of heaven. Guys, that is bad news. Because you see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the, the standard of religious professionals. They were people that literally lived their entire lives to keep the law and to make sure other people were keeping the law. And Jesus says, you don't just have to be as good as them, you have to be better than them. That being the case, none of us stand a chance and Jesus knew as he was preaching this message everyone that was listening would have understood that exact same truth so he goes on to give a few famous illustrations each time beginning with you have heard it said pointing back to the laws. This is what you've known your entire life. This is what you've been taught your entire life. And he gives these illustrations of murder and adultery and marriage and divorce and integrity and generosity and love. Each time, you have heard it said, don't murder. 
yes, Jesus, I, I have heard that. And I'm going to be honest. I have spent my entire life being great at not murdering. Like I am, I am solid. Like the gold standard of not murdering. So I'm good there, Jesus. Are you though? You have heard it said, don't murder. But if you're holding anger in your heart towards your sisters and your brothers, if you look at someone and call them a fool, same, same. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I am pro that, Jesus. And I am really good at not committing adultery. Are you, though? Because if you're holding lust in your heart for someone, same, same. See, what Jesus is establishing in this unbelievable Sermon on the Mount is that breaking the law, sin itself, is not a matter of action, but a matter of heart. As Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He even raises that bar higher. It's not even what you do. You can try your hardest to not do these things. But it's not a matter of your physical action. It is a matter of what's in your heart. And I've got bad news for you. Every single one of us, every single day, are committing those sins, breaking that covenant in our hearts. You see, if the law was established so that God's people might be set apart, a holy nation, so that God's people might be a beacon of hope and light to the world, a flashlight showing the way, it is also established so that God's people might understand we cannot do it on our own. I played ball with a guy in high school. He was good. He was really good. He was way better than the rest of us. And he knew it. And in his mind, the understanding was, since I am way better than the rest of them, it doesn't make any sense for me to give them the ball because I can do more with it than anyone else. And that is often the way he played his game. One day in practice, coach was fed up. And so he set up a scrimmage game, us against him, five on one. You think you can do it on your own? Go out there and do it on your own. I'm here to tell you we destroyed him. It wasn't even a contest. Absolutely dominated that game. The point was coach needed for him to understand. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this on your own. We walk in this together. You're a part of something larger than yourself. You do not have the capacity to walk this alone. That's the main point. Uh, that's the point of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the main points of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And all of that comes with good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? Oh, bad news, that's right, Brock. Always bad news first. Good call. 
The bad news is this. As far as we want to run from the Ten Commandments, as much as we want to relegate them to antiquity, to the annals of history, to a waypoint on our journey, they are as relevant today as they were when God chiseled them on stone and gave them to Moses for his people thousands of years ago. Let me say that again. They are as relevant today in our lives that we live every single day as they were in the life of Moses, in the life of David. Go on all the way down the list. We cannot run from or ignore the Ten Commandments. To the extent we follow any of the commandments, we, we immediately go to kind of that, that vague, fuzzy, cushy, warm, love God, love people. Because, you know, that's what Jesus said, right? I don't have to know all ten commandments because I'm just going to know these two. Love God, love people. Jesus said it all boils down to that, which is true. But who gets to decide? You see, that's why we love this concept of loving God and loving people. A, because it's very subjective. B, because there's a whole lot of wiggle room in there. It's incredibly vague, and we get to define it for ourselves. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, and the law is founded on, summarized in these two. If you do these two, you are keeping the law, but the law itself describes those two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul. I got it. I'm on it. I love God. Big fan of that one. You know, I, I don't have any other gods in his presence. I recognize he is the only one. I have never carved an idol. But man, I've had them. Every one of us have active, thriving idols in our life right now. And a lot of them are really good things. In church pews, churches just like this, all across the country in this exact moment, they are filled with people that worship their children. Children can be wonderful and good and a gift from God. They can also absolutely be an idol that we put their happiness, their opportunities, our idea of what their life should look like, we establish all of that well before our relationship with God. We put it well in front of our relationship with God. Success, careers, money, relationships, power, prestige, influence, all of these things are idols. We haven't even made it to the second commandment. Before, we've just fallen off a cliff. Every single one of us falls short of love God, love people. Well, Hannah, those, those second six commandments, I'm pretty good at those. I try my best to honor my mother and father. But, but I, I mean, I don't murder. I don't steal. Maybe. But how often do we rob our fellow man of their dignity, of their worth, of their value? 
How often in putting ourselves in front of others are we stealing? How often are we coveting someone else's life, house, job, vacation? Every single day, the idea that we can love God and we can love people without understanding the Ten Commandments is absurd. They are absolutely as relevant today as they ever have been. For many of us, that is the bad news. The good news is this. We are no longer bound by them. Jeremiah once again, God's people had broken the covenant time and time and time again. God never did. God never does. God never will. His people found themselves in exile in Babylon, and God was speaking to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, he drops a little spoiler. There's coming a day. It's not today, but there's coming a day that I will establish a new covenant with my people it's going to be different than the old covenant that you keep breaking time and time and time again you see when the covenant was broken a price had to be paid we see that throughout the old testament that price was often paid in bloody sacrifices it was sometimes paid in exile and destruction and pain and suffering but a price had to be paid and the good news is that price has been paid In Luke chapter 22, as Jesus sat in that room with his closest friends and followers having one final Passover meal, injecting ancient elements of the Passover with brand new meaning, he says, this bread, this is my body. It's broken for you, foreshadowing the pain and the suffering and the torture and the execution that was coming in the next few hours. As he held up the third cup of Passover, as he held that cup of wine, he says, This is my blood spilt for you. This blood is the new covenant. Let it begin today. And the new covenant that was promised, the new covenant that was established in Christ's blood says that. Where there was no way. Because it is impossible to do this on our own. God made a way. Where the law had to be fulfilled. Christ did that for us. Where a price had to be paid. He paid it. Once and for all of eternity. No longer do we have to wonder no longer do we have to wander because we have been established and identified as chosen as holy as righteous because we are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of the new covenant as we march into this next season May we never lose sight of what we believe. This morning, 
as a worship team comes back up to lead us in, in one more song of worship, I want to take just a few moments to pray together. Hopefully by this point you're in a rhythm where you know exactly what posture you need to find to eliminate all distractions, to just bring you to this moment, to bring you to the foot of the cross. Take a moment. Deal with any barriers that you have put up, that you have erected, that stand between you and your creator. Lord, this morning, we confess that we've tried everything. We've searched for our worth and our value. our identity and our purpose and everything but you. Reestablish in our hearts and our minds and our souls the foundational truth that while we can't do it on our own, the greatest miracle human history is that it was done for us. We receive that this morning and we stand grateful and amazed in the presence of our Creator. We pray these things in the name of the one who did it all. Amen. <laughs>